Good morning. My name is Chris Genders. I am the youth pastor uh, for the church. And let's just be honest, this is strange, right? Um, if you're normally here, you know that uh, we have rows and we do this. And this is just changes things up a little bit. And there's a reason for it. There's a method to our madness. Um, and we'll explain that later. But, um, you know, I'm just going to get it out of, out of the way right now. Um, in a format like this, it's really hard to do a, a, a check of your fly uh, before you come take the stage. Um, I'm just, just saying, um, as a public speaker, you always check your fly before you go on stage. And I'm like standing there. People are looking at me over here. I'm like, I can't, I can't, you know? So anyway, we'll just get that out of the way. So yeah, it might be a little awkward at times uh, for us, and, uh, but I, I think you're going to like it, and um, I'm just really glad you're here. Uh, so why are we sitting like this? I'll tell you later. Um, you know what I've discovered as uh, this is the first time I've, I've taught um, in this part of uh, the sermon series, in the story. Many of you know that we're going through a book called The Story, and it is an, uh, a chronological abridged version of the Bible which means it's going from Genesis to Revelation according to the way it would have flown in history. And, but not everything's in there. And I don't know if you uh, have experienced that, but I've wrestled with that a little bit. There's things I'm reading in the story, and, and then they have like this summary paragraph, like this happened and he went there. And I'm like, whoa, there's a whole lot more in there than that. Like, can we please like dive into that? And, you know, that's just, that's just me. That's the way I'm wired. I've been, I've been studying this book for 19 years, and and I love digging deep into it. And um, I, I lead a group of guys on Wednesday morning, and um, they know that I could spend like an entire hour on a word or a couple phrases um, in Scripture. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, I was gone uh, for see you at the pool. I, I was at the schools, and and uh, so the guys did the group on Wednesday morning, and they went through an entire chapter in one morning. And I'm like, how? How is that possible? Um, but I just I just love to go into that. Maybe some of you are like that, um, and you're you're reading the story. You're you're on chapter five, and. And you're struggling with that because you're like, there's so much more in there. And for those of you that are like me and, and have been in Scripture like this, I want to say to you that there's a lot of people in this church who this is the first time they've heard those stories. This is the first time they've, they've kind of understood that there's a, a bigger picture, bigger story going on. First time they've ever dig, dug deep into some of these, these stories that we may take for granted. And so no matter where you are in your walk, whether you've been walking with God for a long time, um, whether you're just started your, your journey with Christ, or maybe you don't even believe in God, but your friend drug you here this morning, um, I just want to say thanks for being here. And I hope that God speaks to you uh, through the music and the prayers um, and the teaching this morning. So if you would, would you pray with me uh, as we start the service or start the sermon? So we're on chapter 5, uh, if you've been reading along in the story. And uh, what's happened so far, for maybe some of you who haven't been, um, or maybe you're new with us, is um, we've seen God in Genesis create the world, create everything. Uh, we've seen him create man and Adam and Eve. And uh, we've seen Adam and Eve um, struggle with uh, their humanity and sin, and, and they ate of the fruit of the tree, and um, they, they were kicked out of the garden. And we'll get to that here in a little while later, too. But um, then we see Adam and Eve have uh, Cain and Abel, and, you know, that doesn't go so well. And uh, we see um, the Tower of Babel, and we see Noah and the flood. And um, then we see this guy, Abraham, who kind of arrives on the scene. And, and Abraham's dad, I don't know if you caught this, but Abraham's dad was a guy who made idols for people to worship. He made images of other gods for people to worship. And God calls to Abraham and says, listen, I know what your dad does, but I'm going to call you out away from that, and you're going to worship one God, and that's me, um, and there are not going to be any idols, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit too. But I want you to leave and go and go into a nation, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you where to stop. So Abraham goes, and Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Abraham's really old. He's 100 years old, and he has Isaac. Um, 
God asks him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Um, he doesn't. God provides a ram. Um, and then Isaac goes on and has Jacob. Jacob goes on and has 12 sons. Um, one of those is his favorite named Joseph. And the other brothers, they don't really like the fact that dad's got a favorite. And so they, they plot to kill him. Well, they don't end up killing him, but they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And uh, Joseph ends up being, um, he honors God and God honors him. And, and he's raised up to be uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man. And he's put in charge of everything in the entire nation of Egypt. And uh, he just, he's running everything. And, and then we see um, all of the Hebrews start to come. Jo- Joseph's family comes and finds refuge in Egypt. And the nation of Israel, be, the Hebrews, begin to expand and grow and, and uh, multiply. And, and there's million plus strong uh, by this point in the story. And uh, if new Pharaoh comes along and he's a little concerned, we have this, this people group that's a million plus, and uh, wow, if, if our enemies were ever to shoot, get them to be allies, they could really affect us as a nation. And so he forces them into slavery. And they cry out to God, and God hears their cries. And, and he sends this guy named Moses. Moses goes in. He's raised in the Pharaoh's household. And he goes in and, you know, let my people go, all that good stuff. And um, he, all the plagues come on. And, and finally, the killing of the firstborn sons. And Bill talked on this last week. And Charlton Heston, you know, Ten Commandments, all this stuff. I was one of the ones, honest, I'll just admit, I was one of the ones I've never seen Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments. Um, I've seen the Disney version, uh, the animated. I don't know if that, Prince of Egypt, I don't know if that counts or not. But... Um, I was one of those people. And uh, he was just appalled at that, by the way. Bill was like, you have never seen the one and only Charlton Heston Moses movie? I'm like, sorry, Bill. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but so we've got Moses, and, and he calls the people out, and he takes them out of Egypt. And uh, we see the Red Sea expedition where the, the Red Sea divides, and, uh, and Israel walks across on dry ground, and then the waves come and crash over Pharaoh, and they forgot to pack their scuba gear, so they all die in the Red Sea. And and now we're kind of in the wilderness. And we've got this million people plus group. And they're, they're wandering around the wilderness. And, and God is having to take them to school. He's having to educate them on what it means to be God's people. He, he has to instruct them because he wants them to be different than the rest of the world. To stand out, to represent God um, to the rest of the world. And so he has to go through this kind of wilderness education with them. Um, we, we see this amazing thing that happens where God actually comes down. I don't know how this works exactly, but God comes down and appears to the nation of Israel as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And uh, we have an artist's renditioning here of the pillar of fire because their Polaroid was broken. They couldn't get a good picture of it. Um, so this is what it looked like. And, you know, just everywhere they went, this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire at night went before them. Think about that for a minute. How many times in our lives, if you're a Christian in this room, how many times in your life have you gone, man, I really wish I knew what God's will was for me. I really wish I knew, you know, where I was supposed to go with my life and who I was supposed to marry and what job I'm supposed to do. And am I supposed to go to this school or that school? Am I supposed to become this or that? What if we had a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire that just said, well, Chris, this is what you do. Go left. Oh, okay. I'll go left. And then the pillar moves. Oh, I'll go right. Like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what the nation of Israel had. They had God coming down and saying, go here and stop here and camp here for a while. And the scripture tells us that sometimes the pillar would stop and, and stay in a spot for a day. Sometimes it would stay for a week, a month, maybe even years. But all the, all the Israelites had to do, I mean, God is there in their presence, right? I mean, like, what do you have to have more of to follow God faithfully than God to just plop down in the center of this room and go, hey, do this. And I mean, that's what God was doing for the nation of Israel. And he was saying, go here, do this. And then God is saying, I want you to be different than everybody else. You're going to be my people. You're going to represent me to the rest of the world. 
And we see this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that idea of a priest, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but a a priest is simply a mediator between God and men. It's a person who is a go-between to talk to God on behalf of men. We we see this um, obviously in the Catholic Church. The priest is the mediator uh, between God and men. Um, But here we see an entire nation who is going to be priests. An entire nation who is going to represent to the rest of the world what it means to be followers of God. And God says, all you got to do is just follow my covenant. And I love the fact that Scripture shows their failures. I love the fact that, that when you read about people in the Bible and you read about leaders, they don't gloss over it and make it you know, all look pretty. I mean, they show their mistakes. They show their failures. And, and here we have Moses. They're in the wilderness. And, and God calls Moses to the top of Mount Sinai. And he says, I'm going to talk to you, Moses. I'm going to teach you what it means to be my people. Um, and, and we're going to spend about 40 days up there. And so Moses, you know, who has just kind of arrived on the scene for many of the, the Israelites, just kind of this guy shows up and says, follow me, and we're out in the wilderness. And, and then he disappears for 40 days. He's up on this mountain. And everybody's going, what now? Like we're sitting in the middle of the desert. Like we had homes in Egypt. We had food in Egypt. Um, yeah, we were in slavery, but we'll forget about that. Um, we had what we needed, right? And they're going, what's the deal with this Moses guy? And so they go to Aaron, his brother, who was one of the leaders as well. And he says, Aaron, you know, we don't know what's going on with Moses. Like, can you make a God for us? Because we don't really know this God that's called us out of Egypt. And so Aaron does this weird thing. It's an incredible story in scripture. He does this thing where he like takes all his gold and, and supposedly throws it into the fire and poof, magically out comes this golden calf, right? And they have this big party. All these people, they start dancing around. They're going crazy um, around this golden calf. Now, Moses comes down, he sees it, he's pretty upset, breaks the Ten Commandments, um, and then strange things happen. But I want to pause here for a moment. Because sometimes when you're reading Scripture, um, you've got to ask yourself, why? Why a golden calf? Have you ever asked that question? Like, why, why in the world is this the situation? Well, remember they just came out of Egypt. They've been 400 plus years in Egypt with their gods and their religion. And the goddess Hathor is the god of partying the goddess of wine and dance. And she is represented as an idol illustrated as a calf. And so here's God calling his people out of Egypt to say, leave all those other gods behind, follow me, learn my ways, represent me to the rest of the world, and the entire nation has failed just months after leaving Egypt. They're like, we're following Egyptian gods again. You just got to ask yourself why sometimes. And, And when you study scripture, I think that's a good question to ask. And so we see God just comes down and, and, and says all this stuff, and Moses gets all upset. And, uh, you know, we look at this, and we're like, okay, I'm not going to bow down to an idol of a cow, right? Like, there's no way that, that I'm going to do that today. And yet, in reality, we all bow down to idols. In reality, we all commit idolatry. Idolatry is when you take anything or anyone and you place it as more important in your life than God. When you elevate that above God, when you put God in the second or third or fourth chair, and so we commit idolatry, we we bow down to the idols of popularity and acceptance. We bow down to the idols of wealth and possessions, of busyness and chaos. We bow down to even good things like family and church can become idols if we elevate those things above God. We bow down to the idols of sports and, and fame and extracurriculars. 
Anytime that we take something and we elevate it above God, we do what the nation of Israel did in the desert when they bowed down to the golden calf. And when we had the, the Basque students here this summer, um, we do a program, if you're new to the church, where we have uh, 10 to 12, 14 high school students from northern Spain. They come and live with us um, in families in the church for about four weeks in the summertime. And uh, they're, they're people who really don't know God. They don't have personal relationships with God. And so um, this is our way of sharing our faith with them. And uh, I remember this summer we had an incredible conversation up at Miracle Camp. And they, they just, it's, it came up in the speaker, and then they asked some of our student leaders and some of our interns, and, and, and then eventually it got to me. And, and they're like, you've got to help us understand this. Um, do you, Chris, do you love God more than your parents? I went, well, yeah, absolutely. And they're like, what? Uh, do you love God more than your wife? Yeah, I do. What? I mean, they were just dumbfounded. Do you love God more than your kids? Absolutely. In fact, I love my wife more than my kids, and I remind them of that every now and again. She was first, you're second, you're gone someday, she's here. So I love her more than you. So just remember that. But they really struggled with that concept of putting God above everything else and letting how you react as a, as a child, as a, a son or a daughter of a parent or as a, a father or a husband, you know, all of those things, letting God be first and foremost and letting your relationship with God filter through into all those things. They just really struggle with that. And I, I think we do too. And this is what the nation of Israel is having to learn here in the wilderness. They're having to learn how to put God first. And so there's a few basic things that God needs to teach them. Number one, he needs to teach them uh, that his people are to live by a set of guidelines. Uh, there's supposed to be some rules and regulations they need to follow. And, and, you know, as human beings, we don't like rules. I mean, we know that they're there and we follow them, but let's be honest. Deep inside, there's times we don't want to follow. There's times where, you know, I know the speed limit is 55 on 116, but I really just want to go 85 because, you know, that four-mile drive to Metamora is just huge. And I can get there so much faster if I just speed. And yet I don't, right? Why? Because I'm going to get pulled over by a cop. I'm going to get a ticket. Like, I know what's right. I know the rules. I know the regulations. But something inside of me is just like, ah, oh, forget it. I don't want to do that stuff. And yet I do it. My daughter Morgan, uh, a couple years ago, she would have been five. My son would have been eight. And, you know, we're raising our kids and teaching them about disrespect and disobedience. And we're disciplining them and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, so she's learning all of this stuff. And we had this situation where Ethan was just like egging her on right? Evidently, we haven't taught him well enough on that. Um, but he's just like pestering her and trying to get a reaction out of her. And, and you could see it on Morgan's face. She was like fighting the internal fight because she wants to lash out, probably verbally, most likely physically, um, against her brother. And I was just, I'm like watching this and she's like, you could just see it on her face. She's wrestling. And finally, she just goes, if you could read my mind, I'd be in a timeout right now. <laughs> she knew it was the right thing to do. She really wrestled with it. And so we see the nation of Israel. God gives them just a, a few basic rules to start with. We find this in Exodus 20. We know them as the Ten Commandments. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that your neighbor has. A very, ten very basic uh, foundational rules. And our junior high Bible study at Germantown Hills on Monday mornings, uh, we added a couple more uh, commandments recently. Uh, the 11th commandment is thou shalt not drop the donuts because um, they were dropped one morning. It was a tragedy. Um, 12th is thou shalt not eat half a donut and put the other half back in the box. Like that's just wrong, okay? Um, 
But these Ten Commandments for the nation of Israel, they're just, I mean, they're foundational. They're starting points for what it means to follow God, for rules to live by. And and if if you want to summarize them, the first four are all about our relationship with God. It's our vertical relationship. The last six are all about our horizontal relationship, our relationship with each other as human beings. You see, all throughout Scripture, we discover that God has a way that he wants us to live. God has a way that he wants us to, to respond to different situations. God has a way he wants us to, to interact with the world around us. And as followers of Christ, our responsibility is to change our lives to match what we find in Scripture, not the other way around. And yet so often we do that. We, we read something in Scripture and we're like, okay, I'm supposed to live that way, I know, but I don't really like that, so I'm going to change what the Bible says so I can feel more comfortable with myself. And we can't do that. Our job is to, to align our lives with what we find in Scripture. Um, we, we say to God things like, God, I, I know you say this, but I really say this. I know better, God. I know that you say this is how I'm supposed to be a husband or a wife, but God, I'm, I'm going to say this is how I do it. I know that you say this is how I'm supposed to be a son or a daughter, but I'm going to tell you, God, how, how it's going to work. I know that you say this is how I'm supposed to, to handle my finances, how I'm supposed to be an employee or an employer, how I'm supposed to maintain my sexual purity, how I'm supposed to treat my body, how I'm supposed to treat other people, how I'm supposed to fill in the blank. And then we go, but God, I, I say this. I know what you say, but I got this, God. I got it all figured out. I know better than you. See, we, we picture God as this cosmic killjoy with all these rules and regulations, and he's there to slap our hand when we do wrong. And we've got to change that perspective. We've got to understand that, that God has a better way for us to live than we could ever come up with. The way that I illustrate this with students in student ministry is um, I, I describe Scripture and I describe God as, as guardrails for our lives. You know, you're driving down the road and you're on a mountainous road and, and winding all over the place, and there's guardrails there, right? Uh, they're to keep you from going off of the edge of the cliff and you know, falling thousands of feet down the edge of the mountain. Scripture is that. God's way of living is those guardrails for us. And within those guardrails, God gives us freedom. He says, do whatever you want to do within these guardrails. If you go outside of that, I'm just going to warn you, you're going to, you're going to run into problems. And so people will sometimes go, you know, man, God just takes away all my freedom. Um, he's just really limiting on my life. And so then I go into this conversation about, you know, well, let's say you go to a party one night and you decide to get drunk. And you decide that rather than having a friend take you home, uh, that you decide to get in your car and drive home. And on the way home, because you don't have good control of your mind and your body, uh, you get in an accident, you destroy your car, and you kill an entire family of people. Are you going to be limited in your freedom after that? Yeah. Uh, you're going to have the police are going to arrest you for manslaughter. You'll probably go to jail. You'll probably be sued by the family, that you, the extended family, by the, of the people you killed. Um, you'll have the emotional guilt of killing an entire family. And yet God is saying, you know what, if you would have just listened to me and not gotten drunk in the first place and not driven home, you'd have all the freedom you need right now. You wouldn't be in jail. You wouldn't have the emotional guilt placed upon you. Live within my guardrails. Freedom within those guardrails, and you will have more freedom than you could ever think or imagine. And yet so often in life, we say to God, you know what, God, I got this. I I know how to do this better than you do. And we've got to turn that around. And so God is saying to the nation of Israel, here's, here's some basic ways that I want you to live, some guidelines, some rules that, that I want you to follow, and trust me, it's for your own good. And he's saying those same things to us today. Secondly, God, to the nation of Israel, needed a place to stay. Uh, my, my nephew, or no, my, not my nephew, my cousin, 
uh, Karen's cousin, actually, uh, Matt. He's a junior uh, mechanical engineering major at Bradley. And uh, he lived in our basement this summer. He had an internship. And we were together at Easter earlier this year, and, and I was talking to him, and I said, so, hey, what are your plans for the summer? And he goes, funny you should ask. And I go, okay. He goes, I got an internship. Can I live in your basement for the summer? I went, sure. Hey, Karen, is that okay? And she was like, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I've known this kid for 19 years. But in, once he moved in, he lived with us for three months. I knew him so much better than I did all these 19 years prior, right? Because you live with a person, and, and you, have this, you know their quirks, their habits, their, what makes them laugh, what makes them mad, what, what annoys them. And we found out that our cats annoy Karen's cousin. Um, comment every day about cats and cat fur and annoying cats. Um, sorry, that's quirks. You discover these things, right? You're supposed to laugh at that. That was like weird for me. You didn't laugh. All right. Moving on. So God says to the nation of Israel, he says, listen, um, if I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, um, I need a place to stay when I come visit. And so we have this passage in Exodus chapter 25. He says to the nation, he says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Uh, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Uh, ever since the Garden of Eden, God has desired to walk among his people, to live with his people. We see that with Adam and Eve, that he walked in the garden with them. We see it in Revelation, that in the ends of time, that God will once again walk upon the earth with his people. Should it surprise us that in the midst between Genesis and Revelation, that God should desire to walk among his people? And so he says to the nation of Israel, build this place, this tent for me, um, that I'm going to come down and, and, and visit you and stay in uh, when, I'm vis- when I'm there. And if you're familiar with scripture, you know there's this thing called a tent of meeting. And it was something that as the nation traveled, uh, Moses uh, would take this, this tent. And he'd set it out here on the outskirts of the camp. Um, not anywhere in the camp, but it's kind of removed uh, from everything else and from everybody else. And it, there was nothing really special or dramatic about this tent other than it was the tent of meeting. And Moses would go there occasionally to talk with God. And, and scripture tells us that whenever Moses would travel out to the tent, uh, the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire would descend on the tent. And everybody would stand at the entrance to their tents, looking at the tent of meeting and waiting for that cloud to descend. And then once Moses went into the tent, uh, they would go back to whatever they were doing and Moses would meet with God. But God says, listen, I, I like the tent of meeting idea, but it's not quite enough. Um, I want something a little more permanent. It's still going to move around, but I want something a little more permanent. And so he, he gives them very specific instructions for building this thing called a tabernacle. And this is about the point where all of us get really bogged down with reading through the Bible in a year, right? We get to the instruction of the tabernacle and make this golden lampstand and this and this many cubits and that many cubits and Levitical teachings and all these laws. Here for, and we're like, really? All right, I'm done with this book. It just doesn't make sense to us. But God is testing their willingness to obey their willingness to follow him to the letter by giving them instructions on this tabernacle. And so he has them build this thing. And um, I've got a picture here from uh, Todd uh, Shire and I went to Israel in 2010. And uh, there was a place where they had, had built a life-size model of the tabernacle. And so this is in the desert um, in Israel. And you can see the, the curtains or the, the fence kind of all around it. Um, there in the front you have the, uh, the, the brazen altar where they would sacrifice animals. The basin is where they would wash the sacrifices or will purify themselves. And, and then you have this tent that they would go into. And this next picture is kind of a diagram of what's in the tent. There were two sections in the tent. Uh, there was the holy place, which was about 15 feet wide by 30 feet long. 
And in this holy place was the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. And there's, there's incredible symbolism here, and we don't have time to go into. Um, but then there was this other room. And you see it there, it's called the most holy place. We get really creative with our titles, right, in Scripture. Our most, we have a holy place and the most holy place. So this is special, and this is super special. Um, but it's also called the holy of holies. And between those two, that line going down between there is a thick curtain. It's three feet thick. And that holy of holies is where God would come down and he would reside between the angels that were on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the carved angels. And he would interact with Moses or Aaron or the high, whoever was the high priest. And they would, they would go in and, and talk with God and, and meet with God face to face. It was a very sacred place, very holy place. And you had to be extremely um, pure, uh, which required animal sacrifice, which we're going to get into here in a little bit, to go into that place. It was a very sacred place. Now, if you want to fast forward to Scripture, um, we, we see when Jesus... I didn't, I didn't say this last, last service, but we see when Jesus is crucified, that curtain is torn in two. The temple is, is shaken by an earthquake, and that three-foot-thick curtain is torn in two to symbolize that God is now with man. You don't need a mediator between God and men. Okay? Um, so we have the holy place. We have the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And uh, there's all of these things. And if you come from a Catholic background, uh, if you have that in your, your history, um, I don't know if you've ever realized this, but in the Mass, um, you see a lot of these things. In every Catholic church, there is a tabernacle. Um, and that is the place where the, the bread and the wine, the Eucharist, are held. And it's a very sacred place. And, and it's this tabernacle. It's the Holy of Holies. Um, you see an altar, the front altar in the Catholic Mass, where the priest will come up and read the Scripture and, and present the Eucharist to the church. That's the altar of sacrifice outside of the tent in the tabernacle. Uh, you see the, the priest um, wears the very ornate garb. And if you've studied the, the Scripture, then you know that Aaron, as the high priest, um, wore this very special outfit, very special garment, um, to present himself before God and before the, the nation of Israel. You see this incredible symbolism in the Catholic Mass. And so I'd encourage you, next time you go to a Mass, sit back and just kind of realize that what you're seeing is a modern-day recreation of the tabernacle and the people coming before God in the Old Testament. Incredible pictures. It will, it will, change, it will, it will change completely your understanding of the Catholic Mass. And I, and I know we have some Catholics in the church, in the church here today. Um, go and, and look at the Mass and experience it through the lens of the Old Testament, and you'll discover a rich history in the Catholic Mass. But Scripture would tell us that God would come down into this place, into the Holy of Holies, and connect with Moses and Aaron and the high priest. And so God not only had instructions, but God needed a place to stay. He also required a way to uh, restore the relationship between a holy God and, and a fallen people. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sin, um, they're separated from God. They're, they're spiritually broken between God. There's a relationship that needs to be restored. And, and God, I don't know if you ever looked at it this way, but God shows incredible love and compassion by kicking them out of the garden. And you're going, what? That doesn't make any sense. They were, they were kicked out of the garden. That's a good thing? Absolutely, because the tree that was remaining in the garden was a tree of life, eternal life. And if they would have eaten of that tree in that spiritual condition, they would have been separated from God for all of eternity. And so God, in his great love, kicks them out of the garden and begins this process, Genesis to Revelation, of restoring that relationship that he once had with Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and, and we see these things that he starts to do. He says, okay, this is how we rebuild this relationship. This is how we restore that relationship. And we don't really understand it, in our modern eyes today, 
And we don't understand when we read scripture why this had to happen, but um, he institutes this thing of animal sacrifices. And he says, okay, if you want to purify yourself as an individual or as a people, as an entire nation, um, we need to spill blood. We need to make a sacrifice. That's God, not me, okay? I don't really understand why. Um, I'm just telling you what Scripture says. And so we see in Leviticus chapter 17, uh, verse 11, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Um, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament. Uh, the story kind of glosses over it, but the, the tabernacle was a bloody, bloody place. I mean, there are animals getting sacrificed every day in this place. Blood is being spilled out on the altar. It's being sprinkled on people. It's going into the Holy of Holies. I mean, blood was just everywhere in this place. I mean, it was not a clean, you know, pristine place. It was a place where blood was spilled to restore that relationship. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and make atonement, make um, restoration to God, make uh, what was once wrong, make it right between God and the people of Israel. And he, he would go in, and it was just a once-a-year thing. He would go into the Holy of Holies. And to, to purify himself, they had to sacrifice a ram. He had to sacrifice an entire ram and, and do specific things with the, the meat and the blood. And that would purify him as a high priest. And then they would take two goats uh, that represent for the nation of Israel. And one goat would be sacrificed, and his blood would be spilled. And the other goat, the priest would lay his hands on it, and he would symbolically lay the sins of the entire nation on that goat. And then that goat was released into the wilderness. It lived, but it was released. And it was symbolically God saying, I'm taking the sins of the nation of Israel away from you. Where we get the idea of scapegoat, it's from this. The scapegoat takes away the sins of the people of of Israel. And then their relationship is made right with God. Now that was was something they had to do every year. That was something they had had to do that, that sacrifice every year to be right with God. And this shouldn't really surprise us. Because we've already seen sacrifices in the story, right? Uh, we've seen Abraham, God calls to sacrifice Isaac. And so he, he lays Isaac, who's about 13, 14 years old, um, down on the altar. And he raises the knife, and then God stops him and gives him a ram to sacrifice. And the ram's blood is spilled in place of Isaac. And we, we see um, the Israelites, that when they're in Egypt, and uh, the, the curse of the firstborn sons, the plague of the firstborn sons, uh, when the angel of destruction is going to come through and kill all the firstborn sons in all of Egypt, what does God have the Israelites do? Sacrifice a lamb, pure, without defect, take its blood, uh, take hyssop, and run it around the doorframe of your house, and when the angel of, of death comes through, it will pass over your house. And so we already see that there's something about blood being spilled that makes us right with God, that restores a relationship with God. Um, I, I taught with the students this idea of hidden Jesus, that in the Old Testament there are these, these moments where Jesus appears as the second person of God even before he's born. And there's these allusions to Jesus in the future. There's these prophecies about Jesus. Um, we've got some picture frames here that we, we built a timeline. I, I really encourage you to go take a look at it. We built a timeline in this hallway out here. And it's just 31 frames representing 31 chapters of the story going from Genesis to Revelation. And what we've done as we teach through it is anytime there's a connection in the Old Testament to Jesus, we run a red string all the way up to Jesus. And what's, gonna, what's been amazing for the students is discover that every chapter so far, there's something about Jesus. If you want to understand the New Testament, you've got to study the Old Testament. Um, I, I use the illustration of uh, the hidden Mickeys at Disney. If anybody's been to Disney, I know Driscoll's years just went. Um, there's these hidden Mickeys everywhere, right? And people go and they write books about where you can find these hidden Mickeys. It's the same thing. All throughout the Old Testament, there's hidden Jesus. 
And you've got to look at, at what does this mean? How does this help me understand? Or how does this point towards Jesus? And so we have this idea of sacrifices and, and Abraham and Isaac and, and the lamb on the Passover and, and now this day of atonement where these sacrifices are being made. And you, you've got to wonder, is there a connection? Hebrews, New Testament, chapter 9. Verse 22 and 28 says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Christ was that ram. Christ was that Passover lamb in Egypt. Christ is this goat on the Day of Atonement. His blood spilled for us, not a once a year, not something we have to repeat, but a once for all of eternity sacrifice, blood spilled for us. band's going to come up. We're going to do a song. And it's a song that probably is not familiar uh, to many of you. And what we want you to do is just sit and um, sing with the band, but don't, don't stand. Let this song be your prayer. And as you, you sing the words, you're going to see familiar words now. You're going to see Holy of Holies. You're going to see the courtyard. You're going to see Brazen Altar. And now you're going to understand what that's talking about. And allow this song to be your prayer this morning to take you symbolically into the presence of God in that Holy of Holies. So why are we sitting like this? The tabernacle where God came down and the nation of Israel met with God was situated in the very center of the camp. No longer is it the tent of meeting out there but it's the focal point of the entire camp. Uh, you see this diagram, and there's so many things that I wanted to go into on this that I just I couldn't go into. Um, but there's incredible things about the layout of the camp. But I'll just leave it at this, that the tabernacle was the very center of the camp. The Levites were the people who were in charge of, of maintaining the tabernacle, and they had the closest spot to the tabernacle. And then all of the tribes, there were 12 tribes that positioned themselves north, south, east, west. God gave them very specific instructions on where they were supposed to camp inside the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle was in the center of the camp. And we wanted you to feel that today. We wanted you to feel that by putting the worship and the teaching here in the center and imagining the tribes to the north and the east and the south and the west. What if, what if we as followers of Christ... We're to put God in the center of our lives and be serious about it. What if, what if God was, was really the focal point of our lives? And, and I'm speaking right now just to the, the Christians in the room. I know that there's some of you here that have not surrendered your lives to Christ. And we hope you will one day, but I know, I know there's some of you in here that haven't taken that step. And so you're, you're sitting here going, okay, this makes sense historically. I, I like it, but um, what you're about to say doesn't really apply to me. You're right, it doesn't. Because you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. You haven't yielded your life to Scripture. And so if, if that's the case, if you're in that situation, just kind of sit back and, and let me talk to the Christians and, uh, for a few moments. But for those of us who have, who at some point in our life confessed Christ, what would it look like if we really put him at the center of our world? If every thought that we had, we ran it through the filter of what would God have me think? If every action we performed, we ran through the filter, what would God have me do? Every word that we say, every hope that we have, every dream, how we parent, how we live, how we, we treat our neighbors, how we, we treat our employees, 
What if everything went through that filter of having God in the center of our world? And yet in reality, here's what happens. I'm going to use the Bible to illustrate God. We take God out of the center. And he becomes just another thing out here. Equal level with everything else in our lives. Equal status with my wife. Equal status with my kids, my job, my hobbies, my interests, what I do with my free time, how I treat my neighbors. And God's like, oh yeah, just part of that mix. And I go to church, I may give, I may serve, I may be in a small group. But realistically, God is not in the center of our lives. What would it look like in your life and mine if God really was at the center of your life? We're going to sing another song. It's called The Heart of Worship. And we're going to ask you to stand as we sing this. And again, let it be a prayer. And maybe for some of you, you realize that God is way out there on the peripheral. That he once was the center of your life. And he hasn't been for a long time. And you need to, this morning, commit to making him the center of your life again. And maybe you need to come up. I mean, we don't do this very often, but maybe you need to come up and you just need to to kneel down here as if God were here meeting you in the Holy of Holies and pray in his presence and just surrender and confess that you've put him on the peripheral. Maybe some of you have never yielded your life to Christ and you don't even know what that would look like. You don't know how to do that. We want to help you with that. It is one of the most important decisions you could ever make, and it will be one of the most challenging decisions you ever make. The life of a Christian is not easy. The life of the Christian is extremely difficult because God calls us to be different than the rest of the world, to look different, to act different, to treat other people different, to view the world differently. And it's a challenging call. But God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for all of humanity. And maybe this morning you need to start that relationship and start that journey and put Christ at the center of your world. And if that's your case, come up and talk to us as well. Maybe you don't want to come forward. We have our prayer room right out these doors over here, and we have people that would love to talk with you and pray with you and show you scripture this morning. We're just glad you're here. Let this last song be a moment between you and God. Would you stand as we sing? Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.